Welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I'm Kylie Colwell. This is Kate Carter. And I'm Holly Spear. I have a little more less known story for today, but it's juicy as always. And you may know this one if you're a forensic files fanatic like I am, that this one is very similar to a popular case. So we'll see how long it takes for Kate and Holly to figure out which one. All right, let's go. Our story begins on May 5th. 2009 in the small town of Columbia, Illinois, which is right across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. Very early this May morning at 6.43 a.m. exactly, Detective Justin Barlow gets a phone call from his neighbor directly across the street, Chris Coleman. Chris is a bit frantic, saying he can't get a hold of his wife, Sherry. He's called and texted her quite a few times with no response. Chris explains that she's usually up by now, getting their two young boys ready for school. Chris said that he had texted his wife at 6.23 a.m., asking if she was up and saying he had some cardio left to do, but he would be home soon. A few minutes later, he texted her again, asking if she was up, and saying it was time to get the kids up for school. Detective Barlow tries to calm Chris down a bit, but says he'll go over and and perform a welfare check for him. Barlow knew that the family had been experiencing some threatening issues. Chris agrees to this and says he's only five minutes away. Barlow gets dressed and walks across the street. In the meantime, he called for some backup from another officer. They knock on the door no answer. They walk around the house. All of the lights are off and there's no movement inside. The two find an unlocked window on the bottom floor around the back of the house. The screen had actually been removed, so they entered the house that way. Once inside, the officers quickly noticed the red spray paint covering almost every wall. Above the dining room table, it read, quote, fuck you, I am watching, end quote. Similarly, in the hall were some more naughty words saying, Fuck you, bitch. Punished. Going up the stairs, it read, you have paid. Very naughty. Yeah, naughty naughty words. Immediately, I get weird vibes from this. The red spray paint threats? (laughs) Or he's trying to portray is going on is not what's going on. I already feel like it's... I already have a case in my head. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say without... Yeah. At the top of the stairs were three bedrooms. The two officers walked into the first room where they found nine-year-old Gavin Coleman asleep in his bed. Detective Barlow walked over to wake him up and noticed he wasn't asleep. His skin was gray and cold. His body was already stiff. The detective moved on to the next room where he found 11-year-old Garrett in the same condition. One report I found said there was something spray-painted on the sheet lying over Garrett's body with some red spray paint on his body but I couldn't find anything else about this, so I'm not sure if that's entirely true. Oh, man. That's a terrible scene. Terrible, and there's one bedroom left, the master bedroom. Detective Barlow walked in to find 31-year-old Sherry Coleman lying in the same position as if she was asleep, but Sherry had a black eye and multiple ligature marks around her neck. Detective Barlow followed protocol and left the bodies where they were and called it in with dozens of other officers, examiners, and EMS showing up to the house pretty quickly. They actually all arrived at the house at 2854 Robert Drive before Chris did. He said he was only five minutes away, almost 20 minutes ago. 
Red flags. <laughs> Next line I have in my script is, you may notice the red flags already. Yes, absolutely. Red flags. He said he was five minutes yeah. away from the gym and it took him 20 minutes. That's immediate red flags. Like, what did you do? Circle around a few times? Go through a McDonald's? Maybe. Yeah, and think about how you would have to kill someone to kill, or to kill what? How many kids? Two and then the mom. Th- so three people in their beds, you know, like that would be, I don't know. You know what makes it me happen- sad already? Is that mm-hmm. they, you, Kylie said the wife, the 31 year old wife, she had a black eye. That makes me like, this whole thing sat don't get me wrong but like to think she put up a fight yeah yeah this yeah. is terrible yeah so we're gonna go back to the beginning to kind of decipher what led up to all this and we're gonna start with chris coleman who was born on march 20th 1977 to two pastors in chester illinois he was raised obviously in a very strict religious home along with his two brothers of the three brothers chris was known to be the most devoted to his faith he was also very devoted to his education and athletics. And this is kind of like the running theme with Chris. Everything he did, he had to be the best at it. His good grades and athletic prowess caught the eyes of a Marines recruiter, and Chris enlisted right out of high school, becoming a dog handler within the military police. In May of 1997, 22-year-old Chris was at a convention for canine handlers in San Antonio, where he met his future wife, 21-year-old Sherry Weiss. They hit it off right away. They both had the same jobs. Sherry was a military police officer with the Air Force, and they both were also from Illinois. Sherry grew up in Berwyn, which is just outside of Chicago, to a Catholic family, but her family wasn't nearly as religious as Chris's. They were a bit more casual, you know, the the big holidays. When Sherry was in high school, the family had moved to Largo, Florida, and she often talked to Chris about how much she missed Illinois. Three months after meeting, Chris introduced Sherry to his parents, but he didn't introduce her as his girlfriend. He said she was just a friend and he was driving her home to Chicago. Do we know why? It's because his parents are the absolute worst. (laughs) Uh, So they're very strict and they love their sweet little angel, innocent baby boy. Mm -hmm, Of course. mm -hmm. He's in a full grown adult. Yes. Been out of the house, has a career. His parents didn't even approve of Sherry, even thinking she was just a friend at the time. Apparently, she showed up at the house wearing short shorts, and she had a tattoo on her leg. Oh, my goodness. Chris's mom, Connie, also didn't like that Sherry was Catholic. And on top of that, she was not a very good woman. (laughs) Okay. It was just a half Catholic. It's fine. So after this awkward meeting, Chris drove Sherry up to Chicago, and he called his parents once they arrived. He had a confession. Sherry was pregnant, and they had gotten married. Within three months? Yes. Mm. So this made his parents hate Sherry even more because Mm -hmm. she made their son sin and trapped him. Because that's how it happens. It only takes one to tango, guys. Yeah, just one. But Chris didn't really seem to mind that his parents hated his wife. He loved her, and he was excited to have a family. He didn't re-enlist in the military and decided he needed a more stable job that would ensure he would be home each night. He found a job working in the security department for Joyce Meyer. I remember this from Forensic Files. (laughs) Write it down. Holly just got really excited. You could see the light bulb going off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Joyce is a pretty famous televangelist, you know, with 
the TV shows, the private jets, the mansions, IRS probes. You get the gist. But Chris had actually running a successful ministry, Kylie. I said IRS probes, not guilty convictions. So Chris had actually known Joyce his whole life, you know, through his parents. They actually went to some of these conferences and stuff. So like with all things, Chris had to be the absolute best. He became the supervisor of the security department pretty quickly and ultimately was promoted to being Joyce's personal security guard. He would attend all of her tapings and meetings, traveled internationally for conferences. Basically, everywhere Joyce went, Chris was right there. But he was pretty well compensated for the job, making over 100000 a year, which was double the average for someone of his age in the area. With this money, wow. Chris was able to purchase their three-story home in a nice area. Sherry was also to stay home, where she cared for their two sons, Garrett and Gavin. So things were going pretty well for the family up until 2008. Chris started to change and became this like macho alpha man. He shaved his head. He started working out more. So he's just trying to maintain this persona of being just like macho, like security guard, and maybe the maybe the bald head. It is threatening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel very threatened. He looks like he punches his wife in the eye. Yeah, he looks me. He looks like he's gonna yell at you. Well, he did start to argue with Sherry about her wifely and motherly duties. He was working Uh. hard to provide for his family. The least Sherry could do was keep the house tidy 24-7 and cater to Chris's every need on mm. top of caring for their two young boys, mm. which, of course, that's that was her duties. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris did open up to his boss, Joyce, about their marital issues, saying Sherry was controlling and wasn't devoting herself to their marriage or their faith. Joyce suggested that the two start marriage counseling with one of the pastors there. And Chris immediately accepted. Once this began, Chris reported back that things were going great and counseling was working. His marriage was better than ever. But Sherry had a different story. She told friends that Chris was super nice, caring, and attentive in the counseling sessions. But as soon as they got home, he was back to his mean self. Sherry confided in friends that Chris wanted a divorce and he had told her he didn't love her anymore. In one instance, the two had had sex, which was rare for them at the time. And afterwards, Chris told her, quote, this doesn't mean I love you, end quote. Damn. He sounds like a real POS. I don't know why I said that. You can cuss on the show. It's fine. Yeah, I don't know why I abbreviated that, but in my head, it was the right thing to do. But most importantly, Sherry told a friend that if anything happened to her, it was Chris. Okay, major red flags. Regardless of our relationship, it probably wasn't Cameron. If I go missing or die, it probably wasn't him. Like, I just well, that's don't all you need to know right to, there. He probably wouldn't be able to get away with it. You know, like, it's just not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the people who say that, yeah, he, he's got, like, if it happens, it's, it's him. him. They're scared he's going to get away with it because he's that's so that nuts. kind of person. Also, it's she's awesome. really pretty. Kylie has a picture up she, on the screen right now. Yeah, and she's she really is. I was thinking that earlier too. Yeah. And she was, she's only 31, right? Yes. Yeah. So there wasn't just Chris's coldness. There was another woman. One day when a friend was over, Sherry opened a laptop and showed it to her and said, quote, do you want to see the woman who's having an affair with my husband? End quote. 
So this other woman was Tara Lentz, a cocktail waitress in St. Petersburg, Florida. Some sources say she was a stripper. Ah. Most importantly, Tara was Sherry's best friend from high school. No. Yes. Girl code, dude. Like, what? Yeah. And Chris had met Tara during one of the couple's trips to Florida, you know, to go meet Sherry's friends. And apparently there were immediate sparks. And just a pure coincidence, the same month that Chris began complaining about Sherry in their marriage was the same month that Chris began flying Tara out to visit him during his work trips. Yeah, that's nasty. On the first instance of this in November of 2008, Chris wrote in a little diary entry type thing he had on his computer that Tara had changed his life. You may be wondering why Chris wouldn't just get a divorce, but wasn't just, you know, religious reasons. It would actually affect his job, which, of course, he cared about more than anything. Yep. Joyce Myers Ministries, it was not allowed. So you could be... You could cheat. <laughs> but you, you can't have, have a divorce. How it worked was if you worked at the ministry and your spouse initiated the divorce and filed, it didn't it affect fine. anything. Mm. But if you filed, it would. So they would get like demoted. They would have punishments maybe you had some classes you had to take but if you were having an affair and they found out you would be fired so he was wanting his wife to divorce him yes i hope that they've changed their policies since then that just invites people to be as terrible as possible to so if they want to get a divorce you know i would hope so i wonder if they have like a little manual we can find like an employee handbook i'll be looking for that okay thank you so like you guessed Chris had the perfect plan, make Sherry divorce him, but she wouldn't. No matter how poorly Chris treated her or openly had an affair with her best friend, Sherry wanted to make things work for their children. In Chris's mind, there was no other options other than to dwell up a new plan because the clock was ticking. Tara had given him an ultimatum, leave Sherry by May 5th or she was done with him. In case you missed it, that's the day of the murders. Chris's plan was nothing short of nuts. On November 14th, Chris knocked on Joyce Meyer's office door to report a weird email he had gotten. The email came from destroychris at gmail.com. And the subject line was, quote, fuck Chris's family. They are dead, end quote, with several exclamation points. First email said, quote, I'm sure this will make it to someone in the company. If you jackasses are like any other company, this will be someone's account. Pass this on to Chris. Tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to someone close to her. And if I can't get to him, then I will kill his wife and kids. I know Joyce's schedule, so then I know Chris's schedule. If Joyce doesn't quit preaching the bullshit, then they will die. During the Houston conference, I will kill them all as they sleep. If I don't hit there, then I will kill them during the book tour or the trip to India. I know where he lives, and I know they are alone. Fuck them all, and they will die soon. Tell that motherfucker next time to let me talk to Joyce. She needs to hear what I have to say, and now she will. End quote. It's hard not to laugh while reading that. It's not, like, it's funny, but the actual message is absolutely terrifying. Like, think, like you know, 
but like when you like know what happens it's funny because it's obviously poorly written not yes, just yes, like yes, spelling yes. and grammatically but it's trying to make it seem like oh i'm going after after joyce if i can't get joyce i'll get someone else and right. it's not just any someone else it's chris's wife and kids specifically yeah yeah yeah, yeah not hers or anything if he got divorced he he would get fired like completely just get fired right yes okay my one thing is like go, just get a different job he loved his job i mean i can I, I, okay if it's like a faith thing and you're like okay i can't get divorced because of religious reasons obviously not because you are gonna go on to kill someone and make up all this stuff if if it's about money to you get a new job i don't understand yeah, I don't know. I think it wasn't just the money with the shop. I think it was like personal security for a very famous, powerful woman also played into it. Yeah. That he had known his whole life. He didn't want to disappoint her. No. Yeah. People like him. You know, he's probably, his family probably likes his job. His mom and dad probably like his job. He's got this whole thing built around being this amazing person, you know? Yeah. Like we see a lot. Yeah. So Joyce Slater told investigators that she had gotten plenty of threats throughout the years, but no employees, including ones that were in the public eye, had ever gotten direct threats. So I'm not sure if Joyce took this threat seriously or not, but it didn't really seem like it. She was kind of used to it and probably just told Chris to document it and ignore it. But he kept getting emails. One said, quote, I know you all got my fucking email. You think I am full of shit. Just wait. I will shoot their asses with my 40. Kill them all. I am so sick of bitches like her taking everyone's cash so she can fly her jet and pamper her white ass. Fuck you all. Tell Chris I will kill them. He has no idea when, but it will happen. I'm sure you motherfuckers are going to try putting your pussy ass security team at the house or police. Whatever. I kill them, then I'm coming after Chris. Then you, Danny. Then David. I may not be able to get to Joyce, but I'll get the rest of you motherfuckers. Fuck you all. I know when you read these. Just wait. You will see. Fuck you all. Tell that bitch Joyce to give my money back and talk to me, and this will all stop. Until then, everyone will die, starting with Chris's wife and kids. I know his fucking schedule. Every time Joyce is gone, he is gone. You motherfuckers are probably wondering how I got your emails. You stupid fucks. Just like every company. So fucking predictable. Dumbasses. End quote. I'm just throwing this out there. If I got an email like that at work and they like had everybody's names and stuff, I'd be like, oh my, what? Even though it's written horribly, I would still be like, <laughs> we're all going to die today. He's Dude. probably wrote that first letter. And then everybody's like, um, you're not really in the public eye. Nobody's really worried about you. Like, it's probably just weird, you know, ignore it. And he's like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and then like he writes another letter like, you think I'm joking? <laughs> I think that's what happened. Because no one yeah, did anything probably, about it. He's getting like secondhand madness or embarrassment over that. Because everybody's like, oh, nobody really cares about you. Like, sorry. Like, just ignore it, I guess. And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. And the funny thing is, is like these emails aren't sent to just Chris, like they're sent to other people. Chris is receiving these on his work laptop that they gave him. Like they could easily 
track this stuff down. They literally don't care. Right. He's obviously not a smart fellow. No. So he kept getting some more emails and they said some simpler things like asking why no one had answered, blah, blah, blah. The emails kept rolling in and eventually they made their way through the actual mail, dropped straight into the Coleman's mailbox without any postage. The first threat in the mail said, quote, you deny your God publicly or else no more opportunities. Time is running out for your family. Have a good time in India, end quote. And the word opportunities was misspelled in this one which is important for later. Take a mental note. So for a while, it was just Chris finding these threats, of course. But at one point, Sherry found one of the letters in the mailbox, which, like the others, threatened to kill the entire family. Sherry began to push Chris to report all this to the police, and he kind of drug his feet about this. It wasn't until Joyce also voiced the same concern did Chris actually report it. But he reported the threats to the police department in Belleville, 30 minutes away from his home, so not the police department in his hometown, or the one in St. Louis where he worked. Makes a lot of sense. Chris also told Sherry and Joyce he was going to set up security cameras around the house and have one pointed to the mailbox. Before he could get to it, they had one last message show up on April 27th. This letter said, quote, Stop today or else I know your schedule. You can't hide from me forever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning, and I know when you stay home, end quote. So I'm not sure how Detective Barlow, the cop across the street, found out about the threats. I'm assuming Cherry must have told him. But one day he went over to the house, and he was like, hey, I heard about the threats. Like, I'll set up security cameras at my house, and we can see who's putting these letters in your mailbox. And as soon as he did this, the letters stopped. Yeah, but no, thank you. <laughs> Now we're all caught up, so we're going to jump back to May 5th, 2009, where the bodies of Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett were found in the home. We left off Chris arriving at the home after investigators and EMS did, 13 minutes after he had called Detective Barlow. One of the officers informed Chris that his family were all deceased. Chris did begin to cry uncontrollably in the front lawn, but he never asked how they died, and he never asked to see them, which they thought was weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At one point, Chris became so distraught that EMS placed him into the back of the ambulance. This is when police chaplain, Reverend Jonathan Peters, went to console him, which I had no idea police departments had their own chaplains. I guess that makes sense. It does make sense. But while the chaplain was talking to Chris, trying to calm him down and pray, the chaplain noticed scratches on Chris's arms. He asked about them. Chris didn't say anything. He instead began to punch the gurney almost uncontrollably. Okay, anger management. Like, at least yeah. come up with a story. He actually had a plan. Oh. oh. So Chris was later brought to the Columbia Police Station for some questioning. I'm not sure if they were, like, looking at him as a suspect at this point or if it was just, like, the usual, what was the timeline, you know, type questioning. But it quickly turned into Chris is probably our suspect. Hmm. As soon as Chris got into the interview room, he stated he was cold and requested a blanket. Detective Barlow gave him one, but Chris didn't just cover his body with it. He only covered his arms. The detective asked about the scratches he had obviously just attempted to cover. Chris was like, oh, they must be from when I was like punching the gurney, you know, because I was so mad and distraught. The chaplain had told detectives that the scratches were there before that happened. 
Chris went on with explaining his timeline for that morning, how he had woken up around 5 a.m. to go to the gym and everyone was asleep when he left. He made it a point to mention that he was slow to get out of the driveway because there was a suspicious dark-colored vehicle driving past the house, and he had to wait for it to pass. Side note, the security camera that Detective Barlow set up at his house showed Chris pulling out of the driveway at 5.43 a.m. as normal with no other cars passing by. Did Chris mm-hmm. remember that Detective Barlow put up these cameras, or did he know to begin with? I think he did, because the letters stopped. So Chris continued on to talk about how he had texted and called Sherry, as he usually did, with no response, before eventually calling Detective Barlow, who went over to the house. The investigators asked Chris straight up if he had any red spray paint in his home, and he said no. But if he did, it was probably old, and he doesn't remember it. I will say, though, like if somebody was like, Kate, do you have any spray paint in your home? I'd be like... I don't think so, but like there, there could be. I don't know. Yeah, if it's in the garage, I don't know about it. Right, like that's I, what I'm saying. Like I, there could be. Yeah, who knows what's in there? Like they go up to the attic, no idea what's up there. You know, like just it's a surprise yeah, every that. Christmas yeah. when we go in the attic to get down <laughs> the Christmas tree. Yeah, ma'am, do you have a dead body in the house? No, and then they find one in the attic. You know, it's just oh, weird shit. how that happened. I haven't seen that thing in years. <laughs> <laughs> there's grandma i was wondering why she wasn't at the funeral <laughs> so there wasn't much to go off during this interview that would warrant arresting chris just quite yet so police let him go while they continue to investigate and they had a lot to go through the first piece of evidence they found was in chris's credit card statements it showed that on february 9th chris had bought red spray paint and not any red spray paint, the exact make and color that would match what was found on the walls. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kylie, this case is too much. This is too good. There's so much evidence. And like, we don't usually have cases like this. I think no, we at all. Just, like appreciate the fact that we have all this. Thank you, Chris. Wow. Thank you. Police also seized Chris's electronics, which gave them even more crucial evidence. To start, before May 5th, Chris had never called or texted Sherry while he was at the gym to wake her up or check in on her and the kids. GPS data also showed that Chris had taken a different route home from the gym that morning, one that was almost twice as long. Mm. So definitely not the route someone who was worried about their family's well-being, you know, just called in a welfare check would take. Yeah. Police did search this route extensively. They checked the dumpsters, bridges, the river he drove over. They wanted to find like clothes he may have dumped or a cord that they suspected to be the murder weapon, but nothing was found. On Chris's laptop, they found out that not only was the email address that the threats came from was made on that laptop, but every email that had been written and sent was also from that laptop. Shocker. This isn't like when laptops first became, this is not the first computer, you know, like. 2008, yeah. He should know this by now. You would think, I really want to know if he even like cleared his browser history. Probably not. I'm assuming like just because of this case so far, he probably did not. Yeah, like if you can turn your computer on and like you're still logged into that email, other people can see it. Like what what are you doing? So police cross-examined the threats with documents Chris had written up for work. In every single instance of him writing the word opportunity, it was misspelled, just Mm. like in one of the threatening letters. Mm. Police asked Chris for a handwriting sample, which they sent off to an expert. 
This expert said his handwriting definitively matched the spray painting on the walls. Okay. This hoe didn't even type it. He didn't even no. change his handwriting. He just literally was wrote how well, he I gotta say, this write. is something that like frustrates me in cases that have handwriting samples. Like I do not understand when criminals handwrite a note and send it somewhere and it's used in their case. Why did you not write differently? I said my mom would change her handwriting when she would write like letters from Santa to me when I was a little kid. What are you talking about? What you, you didn't get letters from about? Santa? Yeah, my you mom know, is like not Santa. Which I know she's not Santa. I know Santa's <laughs> Santa. <laughs> we, we just make it sure. That's how I found out Santa wasn't real because my dad has very distinctive bad handwriting, and Santa left a note by the cookies and milk that was the exact same. Well, I just found out Santa my wasn't real because Holly told me. I'm sorry, Kate. I, maybe you should talk to your parents about it. I am. <laughs> In Chris's defense, it's one instance. All of the letters were typed and printed. They just compared the high, the handwriting to the spray paint on the walls. Well, why even spray paint? I mean, so, like same idea here, you know. Yeah. Like, just, yeah. And also. The fact that it was identical from spray paint to how he writes. Have you ever used a spray paint can? It would not look like my handwriting. You know, like it it does not look. I don't think I could do like a single letter directly in spray paint. No. Mm -mm. You must have had some practice. I don't know. So forensic tech experts found the most scandalous piece of evidence on the laptop. Sex tapes with an unknown woman. Oh, great. Okay. So they dug deeper and found a document that explained who this woman was, Tara Lentz. There was this like weird, creepy, like FAQ document that Chris had typed up about Tara. So this document about Tara had a list of all of her favorite things, her dog's name, height, eye color, bra size. This was a document on his computer. Yes. Dude, why? This is so weird. What a weird dude. I don't know. He had like a little cheat sheet for his mistress. I don't understand it. But the weirdest thing on this little cheat sheet document was the name that the couple had picked out for their future non-existent daughter, Mm. Zoe Lynn Coleman. I love that. So police brought Chris back in for some questioning, this time about Tara. Chris tried to explain it away, saying that they had met at one of Joyce's conferences in Florida. And yeah, they had exchanged some flirty texts, but there was no affair. What Chris didn't know is at the exact same time, Tara was brought in for questioning with investigators in St. Petersburg. In her interview, Tara confessed that the two had a sexual relationship. She talked about him flying her out to work trips where they talked about getting married and discussed baby names. She even said that they had exchanged promise rings and they would wear them when they were together on these little trips. During this interview, Chris actually texted Tara saying he was thinking of her and that the wake for his wife and dead children would be at 3 p.m. tomorrow. So he's being interviewed about this murder and she's also being interviewed and he texts her during Uh it. Tara told the investigators about the text as soon as it came through. It was like, oh, he, yeah, he just texted me. And they're like, okay, can we see it? And she showed it. And then she also explained that he had texted her on the morning of the murders. 
So while Chris was crying on the lawn after being told his family had been murdered, he texted Tara and said, quote, call you when I can. I'm all right, end quote. So I'm not sure when Chris was like confronted with all this information, but he did eventually confess to having an affair. But he, you know, surprisingly said he was actually planning on ending it. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure. Let's just fire him, okay? You know who else I should think get fired is his parents, because not only do they believe Chris is fully innocent in all this, they also blame Sherry for the affair. <sighs> they have publicly stated in, in, in interviews that Chris had to do what he needed to do to fulfill his needs as a man because Sherry wasn't doing it. Mm. Arrest mm-hmm. them, too. Arrest them. Anyways, police now have a motive and evidence from Chris's electronics and his handwriting, but there's still an autopsy to be performed. For the autopsy, the Columbia Police Department brought in the big guns, Dr. Michael Baden, who I am a big fan of. I don't know if you guys have seen the show. It's called Autopsy on HBO, and it is kind of gross. It is the only show about autopsies and like medical examiners that actually show the whole body uncensored. Really? I've I've seen it. Yes. It's a good one. The Dr. Baden was also the former chief medical examiner of New York City. And his most famous cases that he consulted on or worked on include JFK, Martin Luther King, Jeffrey Epstein, OJ Simpson, and Aaron Hernandez. Dang, so these are the big guns. Like all the famous ones. Nice. So during the autopsies, Dr. Baden determined that Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett had been strangled with a cord for four to five minutes straight. The most important pieces of the puzzle that Dr. Baden had to figure out was when their time of deaths were. Because according to Chris's timeline, his family had been murdered within a matter of minutes of him leaving his house. Four minutes exactly. Also, according to his timeline, their bodies were already cold and stiff within an hour of him leaving and their discovery. So I went down a little decomposition rabbit hole and I learned a lot. So I'm going to share that information with you guys. Yes, yes, yes. So the first stage of decomposition is called paler mortis. So this is when the body goes pale as blood stops flowing. And this will start within like 15 to 25 minutes after death. The second stage is called liver mortis. And this is when all the blood, which is no longer flowing, begins to pool at the lowest points of the body. A person dies like laying on their back, their backside will look almost bruised and black from all the gravity just pulling the blood down. So this begins in about 30 minutes after death, but the size of the blood pools will increase for a couple hours. The third stage is algor mortis. This is when the body temperature drops. So it's a little more dependent on, you know, the temperature of the person when they die and like the temperature of where they are. But generally, the body's temperature will decrease by 2 degrees Celsius or 35.6 Fahrenheit within the first hour of death and 1 more degree Celsius or 33.8 Fahrenheit each hour. I didn't know it was that fast of a temperature drop. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Medical examiners use a formula called the Glaster equation to estimate the time of death. So using this equation, Dr. Baden determined that the time of death were not, in fact, between 5 and 6 a.m. as Chris suggested closer to 3 a.m. Another piece of evidence that adds to this is the stiffness of the bodies when Detective Barlow discovered them. 
In the last stage before decomposition sets in, rigor mortis does. So we all know it's like when the body stiffens up, but I didn't realize rigor mortis is not permanent and it usually only lasts about eight hours. What? What happens is oxygen is required for your body to produce this chemical that I cannot pronounce that relaxes your muscles and allows you to like, you know, move around. So mm-hmm. as oxygen depletes, the chemicals no longer form. It gets stiffened. But once your body is completely deprived of all the oxygen within it, everything just chills out and your body relaxes again. I didn't know that. So back to the actual case, Sherry and the boys were in rigor mortis at the time of discovery around 6.50 a.m. that day, an hour and seven minutes after Chris had left for the gym. So it was not physically possible for them to be alive when he had left. During the autopsy, foreign skin cells were found under Sherry's nails, and this was sent for testing. But the DNA results were inconclusive. What? It was a partial profile match to Chris, but it wasn't enough to legally tie it to Chris. That sucks, but I also feel like maybe would would her, you know, would his skin be under there anyway? That's true. They were, yeah, married, living in the same house. I don't know. To me, the time of death is more damning than anything. I agree. So with this information, police began to organize all the evidence they had. On May 19th, 2009, only two weeks after the murders, Chris Coleman was arrested at his parents' house. Of course, he was at his parents' house. There were a lot of delays in the trial due to the media coverage and the trouble in finding an impartial jury. Trial didn't begin until April 25th, 2011 in Waterloo, Illinois, which is about 15 minutes south of Columbia, but in a different county. Prosecution began by outlining all the evidence they had proving Chris Coleman murdered his wife and two kids and had been planning it for months. For each piece of evidence, Chris and his team, of course, had a rebuttal or alternative theory. When Dr. Baden testified about the time of death, Chris' defense team showed up with a new unfound formula. This new formula would place the time of death at 5.47 a.m., which, mind you, is only three minutes after he pulled out of the driveway. This stalker person somehow broke into the house undetected by security cameras, murdered three people, spray-painted the whole house, left also with no trace, all within three minutes. Makes a lot of sense. That's mm-hmm. all, I mean, imagine being the defense attorney on this time, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, and you'd have to fight with the wife because she had a black eye. Yeah. yeah. I guess you are just grasping for straws at this point. Yeah. When the prosecution brought up Chris's credit card statement showing he had purchased the red spray paint, his dad actually had an excuse. Ron said that Chris had bought the red spray paint to paint bullseyes when they were playing paintball with the boys. Doesn't okay. prove that he didn't use the spray paint in the house. Yeah. Like you're just reiterating, yo, yeah, he did buy it, but for something else. Chris's defense team also reiterated that Chris did not have any red paint on him when he showed up at the house, and it would be nearly impossible to not have any on him if he had done it. The prosecution rebutted with the fact that Chris was at the gym, a gym with showers. He also had several hours between the murders and going to the gym, and he had the entire route to and from the gym to change clothes or dump anything. Came to all the death threats that were tied to Chris, sending them to himself. Chris's excuse was that someone must have hacked his computer. 
A forensic technology expert testified that there was no such software that allows for someone to remotely control a computer without it being turned on. So Chris just happened to have been on his laptop while the email account was made. And every time an email was written and sent, if it were hacked. Makes a lot of sense. He like gets up and goes to the bathroom. Someone like immediately sits down, (laughs) writes that email. You come back and you're like, what? Additionally, there's no evidence of malware or suspicious software on the laptop. The prosecution clearly laid out this very thought out plan that Chris had developed from creating a suspect to unlocking windows and removing windows screens. There's quite a bit of a tech paper trail pointing to Chris, but the prosecution also had to lay out the motive, leaving his family for his new girlfriend. During the trial, a video deposition of Joyce Meyer was played. In her deposition, Joyce confirmed that Chris had not been himself leading up to the murders. He wasn't attentive at work and wasn't up to his usual standards. She also plainly stated that if Sherry had filed for divorce, Chris's job wouldn't have been affected. If Chris did file, it would have been met with some disciplinary actions, maybe a demotion. If there was an affair, Joyce said he surely would have been fired. There you go. So now it's time to question the mistress herself, Tara Lentz. Tara initially refused to testify, and prosecutors in Illinois had to go down to Florida and get a judge to order her to come back, or she would face jail time. Red flags. Tara was very short during her testimony, basically with like two to three word responses, like yes, no, maybe. But the most telling thing is, get this, guys. She wore her promise ring from Chris while testifying. What? What a weirdo. Do you guys think she knew this was going to happen? She gave him an ultimatum, Mm -hmm. didn't she? She did. And he texted her that morning after he, you know, got home from the gym. He was like, I'm all right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like she would have no idea that they had been murdered. Starting to think that she might. I think she might. She hasn't been investigated for this. But her name is Tara Lentz, spelled L-I-N-T-Z, and she lives in Anyways, during her testimony, Tara did say that Chris did profess his love for her. She confirmed that the two communicated all the time, constantly. Most importantly, Tara said that Chris had told her he was going to serve Sherry with divorce papers on May 4th, 2009, but that there was an error in the papers, and it would be corrected and ready to be served the following day. With all of this evidence, the jury spent two days going through it all and deliberating. On May 5th, 2011, exactly two years after the murders, Chris was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. The next day, the jury determined that Chris Coleman was eligible for the death penalty. Ooh. Chris waived his right to a jury sentencing trial, electing for it to be left up to the judge. But luckily for Chris, unfortunately... Two months after being found guilty, Illinois abolished the death penalty. So Chris ended up being sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole. In 2018, Chris filed a motion for post-conviction relief, arguing that he had ineffective counsel and deserved to be set free, or at least a new trial. His argument centered around the fact that his defense team never brought up the inconclusive DNA found under Sherry's fingernails which he believed could point to an unknown intruder, the stalker. But it was actually a good thing for his defense that this wasn't brought up. If the prosecution brought it up, it would be inadmissible. But if the defense had opened the door, 
the prosecution could show that it was a partial match to Chris. So the DNA couldn't prove it wasn't Chris, and it was more likely than not it was Chris's DNA, just not quite enough. So a judge denied this and dismissed the motion, saying there was an incalculable amount of evidence proving Chris's guilt. So Chris remains in prison where he will sit for the rest of his life. In 2011, Sherry's family filed a civil lawsuit against Chris, Joyce Meyer, her husband, and the Ministry for Wrongful Death. The suit alleged that Joyce should have had a reasonable suspicion that the threatening letters were sent by Chris, and she should have warned Sherry. The suit was dismissed by a judge in 2013, stating that there was no duty to report any suspicion if there was any, which couldn't be proven. Sherry's family disagreed with this because the laptop Chris used was issued to him by Joyce, and they had the ability to investigate and the right to do so. Joyce, her husband, and the ministry was dropped from the lawsuit, and it was refiled solely against Chris. In 2014, Chris was found liable on two of three counts for wrongful death. And that was the story of Chris Coleman, the Chris before Chris Watts. As so- literally, as soon as you started the story, I was like, mm, male, female, it. two kids. He said he was at the gym, like didn't know what was going on, took the long way home. I was like, this sounds quite familiar. What is it also with just like family annihilators that they have? I mean, I, I hate to say this, but a lot of them are ha- raised in families that have like really high expectations. Not that it's the family's fault, but they have really high expectations of them. And, you know, then they have like this perfect family and then they just all of a sudden when it's not going the way they want. But I think the thing is, is like they're all the family annihilators are like narcissists and they're like obsessed with mm-hmm. this like perfect image of a family. Yeah. So they yeah. can't be the ones to like, divorce or like have the affair get out like mm-hmm. it has to be the woman's fault or the kid's fault even if they end up murdering them and like or even confessing to it it's still their fault yeah which i would think that also kids that kill their parents are family annihilators as well and it's always a story of them like failing out of college losing their job like having this fake life completely set up i think hearing about this case where this uh one kid had his parents thinking that he was going to college classes and had an internship with like, I don't know, NASA or something crazy. And then when his parents were about to get the letter that he wasn't going to school, going to school anymore, he just like killed him. I mean, it's just like, yeah, they have this like perfect image. And when it's about to be blown, everyone's got to (laughs) go. Yeah. I like can't tell my parents I'm not going to go to college. I'm I'm just going to kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Man, what an idiot. Literally from the beginning of the story, like every detail to his big ass head, (laughs) all the way down to the spray paint on the wall, like everything was just dumb. And the fact that he had been planning this for months and he still left such a trail of evidence. Yeah. Yeah. What a new mess. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos from the case, you can check out our blog on OverMyDeadPod.com. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check us out on social media at OverMyDeadPod. We'll see you next week with another case. Bye. 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 jump into overtime do you guys have any juicy gossip i don't have any juicy gossip but i want to 
because I wasn't a part of this episode that you guys recorded a little while back, but there was one overtime on a story that you were talking about the beef between Nicki Minaj and <laughs> Megan the Stallion. Yeah. And I just want to comment on it. If you have an opposite take than we have, I don't know how I'm going to feel. I am a Nicki fan. No. <laughs> and She's a barb. I am a barb. Um, now, I will say, I do like Megan the Stallion, but I think Nicki's the OG. Like, she is the OG. She is, but she's such a B-word. Yeah, she is. think that she's losing her Oh, I her wouldn't mind. be friends with her. I wouldn't be friends with her. Do you think she's losing it? Do you think she's losing it? No, I think- but I think she's needing to keep up a reputation. Like, that she's like, yeah, that she's like this bad bitch. I mean, don't get me wrong. Her husband is a pedophile. Her brother is a, a pedophile. pedophile. She was raised in a really harsh like environment. She fought to become this really powerful female rapper. Nobody else does it like Nicki Minaj, like rap wise, like skill wise and stuff. But yes. so, okay, you would say you like her music, maybe lot her as a person. Love her music. Yeah. Um, her new album is stellar. When it's her against other people, I'm always like, oh, yeah. there we go again. But also, you know? if you, like, go, I don't know, like, <laughs> sometimes I just, I don't know, maybe I do like Nikki because some of her videos of, like, her in real life, she's a fucking hilarious. Like, her, eye, like, she, her emotions are funny, interviews are always funny, stuff like this, but you're right, she's not, I would not say that she empowers other female rappers at all like she wants to be the queen and i also don't think megan really started beef i think nikki took it for a loop did you listen to nick did you listen to nikki's song no oh i think that'll change your opinion okay yeah yeah oh you gotta listen to it something about it ain't right with me yeah yeah oh (laughs) that's not good okay dang maybe i take back everything i said then (laughs) i need to listen to it well let's leave that for the second installment (laughs) 